Father God, we come before you in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, our justification, our righteousness, our very life. And as we go into your word now, we ask that you would be oh so gracious and that by your Holy Spirit, you would incline our heart to your heart. Not to selfish gain, not to false motive. That you would open our eyes, that we would behold your glory, your wonder, your excellency in your word. That collectively here, as a family of faith, our hearts would be united to fear your name. The world is so loud. We ask now that you would drown out its noise. There's many fears, concerns, anxieties, stresses, things that seek to, to have our mind wander during this hour. Lord, we know that it's been rightly said that perhaps no hour during the week is more attacked spiritually than when God's people come to worship you. So we ask for protection from all that seeks to distract us. And that, Holy Spirit, you would allow us to be singularly focused and devoted to Christ. Satisfy us now with your steadfast love. Lead us into all truth. May the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do. That is to bring dead hearts to life. That is to wake slumbering hearts. And that is to conform us all into the image of your glorious Son, the one and only, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, today we begin a series on the gospel according to Luke. I will give everybody fair warning. This will be no short series. Um, we will be in Luke for a while because it is a long book packed with amazing truth. Luke is a treasure chest. And we are going to go and extract every precious jewel we can from it. Now, Luke is one of three gospels that are referred to as the synoptic gospels. The other two being Matthew and Mark. And when we call them synoptic gospels, what we mean is that they overlap in what they in what they record in many places. And so they provide this very similar view of Christ and his ministry. And yet there are aspects of it that are unique. And we should know that when we study gospels, Gospels are a biography, but they're not a biography like typical biographies. They're not recording thought patterns. And, and it, the biographies of the gospel are more capturing the life and the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me give a little bit of background on Luke's gospel. Let me set the stage for us so that we can properly understand this amazing book that we're going to be in. First of all, I think it's important to recognize Luke is the longest book in your entire New Testament. The gospel according to Luke makes up 27.5% of the New Testament. You take the book of Acts with that as well, which Luke wrote, and you're in the high 30 percentile of the New Testament recorded by Luke. Like I said, he wrote the book of Acts as well. So Luke should be understood as part one. Acts is part two. It's a sequel. Luke records the ministry of Christ. 
Acts records how the church lived in light of it. Um, if you think about after Luke finished writing this, it would have been circulated to the churches. And then the book of Acts would have gone out of maybe a couple months later, within a year later. Generally, it's believed that Luke wrote his gospel between 61 and 62 AD. That means that Luke wrote the gospel, his gospel account, before Paul ever died. That's why when you finish the book of Acts, Paul's living and preaching still. Because when, Paul, when Luke wrote these things, Paul was still in Rome, not facing imminent death. Luke's writings also make no mention of the horrible persecution that Nero reigned on the church. So we know that it happened before 64 AD. And so taking these things together, Luke gives us a very early account. More liberal scholars would try to push this gospel account into the 80s. But just the internal evidence puts it in the early 60s. And then if you take Matthew and Mark that were written before it, we see that we actually have gospel accounts circulating, promoting the ministry and teachings of Christ within only a few short years of his resurrection. That's an important thing to, for us to understand because oftentimes people say, well, the Bible was written so long after it's made up, but that's not the case. Mark, arguably, arguably the first gospel written, could have been written in the early 40s, maybe even late 30s. I mean, it was written pretty early on. And so you should have confidence when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and as we study Luke now, that this isn't something that happened long ago. This is still relatively recent to the life and ministry of Christ. Now, Luke is believed to have written this from a Roman prison when he was with the Apostle Paul. Um, but prison wasn't the, the like we think of it today. Um, sometimes the prisons were, were house imprisonments, and some were very drastic. But Paul is with Luke. Luke is with Paul. They're in a Roman prison, most likely, and that is where we get our account. So understanding all of that, having that kind of operating in the background, setting the tone, let's jump into this morning's text as we begin this glorious gospel. And I want to do so by first asking the question, why are we even studying the gospel of Luke? It wasn't just picked arbitrarily. I wasn't just flipping through the Bible. And that sounds like a good one. Why did we end up here? Well, as we said earlier, we are beginning a new chapter in our church. We have today marks the day that we open the doors and we invite the community. Men and women who perhaps have never known Christ salvifically, perhaps men and women who have wandered from the faith. Or perhaps believers that have been attending church faithfully even. And we're here. But they've never asked the question, does what I believe about Jesus, is it, do I believe it because it's true? Or do I believe it because it's comforting? So let me ask you that. Why do you believe the gospel accounts? Why do you believe about the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus? Is it because it's a comforting message knowing, well, my soul is secure, I'm forgiven, I'm good? Or do you genuinely believe in your bones that this is true? We live in a society right now where the truths of the Christian faith are under attack. 
where following Christ is seen as foolish. Perhaps you have believed is true, but with the pressing of society, you're beginning to doubt. All of a sudden, that belief you had feels a little shaky. If that's the case, then this gospel is for you. Because the gospel of Luke seeks to make clear that we can have certainty that what has been recorded about the life and ministry of Christ is true. Is our faith, is the truth of the gospel comforting? Yes, it is. But nobody should ever base their life on feelings. You should base your life on truth. And so my prayer is that as we work through this glorious gospel, your belief in Christ will be deepened. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Christ. And I invite you to keep coming weekly. Go on this journey with us and you will see that Jesus is who he says he is and accomplish what he set out to accomplish. Luke makes clear that this is the focus of his gospel account in the first four verses, which we'll look at this morning. So let's read them. Luke chapter one, verses one through four. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in an orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty about the things that have been taught. If you're a note taker this morning, our big idea is simply this. The gospel according to Luke is true, and therefore it is to be trusted and submitted to. I want to be very clear, trusted and submitted to, not simply believed. The only biblical truth you believe is the one that you submit your life to. And so that's my prayer, that this will lead us into deeper submission to Jesus. So point number one, who was Luke? If somebody asked you on the street, hey, who's, who's Luke? Would you be able to, to tell them about him? Let me give a little background. I mean, the first thing we see about Luke is that he was a Gentile. He wasn't Jewish. Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Colossians 4, 14. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Paul's wrapping up his letter here. How do we know that that's a reference to him being a Gentile? Because a couple verses earlier... He says this in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. Paul's listing his Jewish co-workers. He doesn't mention Luke. He mentions Luke a little later. He mentions Epaphras. He mentions Demas. They're Gentiles. Luke is actually the only author 
of a New Testament book that is Gentile. Everybody else was Jewish. And as we're going to see as we go through this gospel, he has a focus on Gentile believers. The early church father, Jerome and Eusebius, said that he most likely came from Antioch. And which will make sense because in the book of Acts, we see that Luke really zeroes in on the area of Antioch, that region. So Luke's a Gentile. But Luke is also a doctor. We just read that in Colossians 4.14. Luke, the beloved physician. If we use a little historical imagination, perhaps we could envision Luke caring for Paul. As Paul is, is walking the trail of missionary, as he's out and about, as he's persecuted, as he just deals with the difficulties of the day and, and an aging body. This travel-worn apostle is being cared for by this beloved physician named Luke. That sounds pretty great, except doctors weren't viewed with the prestige that they are today. Back then, it wasn't viewed as important or accomplished because you were a doctor. Some actually looked down on you. So it's not like Luke's walking around, I'm a doctor. No. He's a Gentile. He's a doctor. Luke's also a missionary. In the book of Philemon, verse 24, we read, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Luke wasn't traveling with Paul simply to care for him. Yeah, he was a doctor, but Luke was also out there doing the work of the ministry, preaching Christ, discipling people in Christ. He had his hands deep in the soil of ministry. He was a historian because he recorded all this. But he's, first and foremost, a follower of Christ. Luke is also an author, as we see by the, 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 the title of this book. We can go through a long defense to show that to be true, but time doesn't allow. But there are various passages in the book of Acts where the writer says, we, 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 reminding himself that he is there, he's a first-hand account. And the only worker of Paul that would make sense in some of those circumstances would be Luke. And on top of that, from the earliest time of the church, it has never been contested that Luke was the writer of this gospel. So he's a Gentile. He's a doctor. He's a missionary. He's an author. And he's one more thing that's extremely important. He's a friend. Luke wasn't simply a fellow co-worker with the Apostle Paul. He was Paul's friend. Again, Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician. Paul could have just said the physician. He could have just said the co-worker, but he said beloved. Paul had deep affections and care for Paul. Uh, for Luke. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, we read of Luke 
with Paul in prison. And this is Paul's last letter before he is put to death. 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes, Be diligent, come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present age, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. There's something beautiful there. Paul was a ride-or-die friend. Luke didn't just leave when things got hard. He dug his heels in and said, I will stand with Paul, even in this prison, to the very end. He's a friend. Luke has loyalty. Church history says that Luke never married, never had children, died between the ages of either 75 or 84. But almost all accounts refer to Luke as a man who served Christ with singular devotion. Everything he did, he did for the glory of Christ. So before we even tackle what he's beginning to read, understand that the words you are reading here come from the pen of a man who is a great example to all of us. Comes from a man who gave blood, sweat, tears in his entire life to the ministry of Christ. He's not some author sitting in some office at a seminary writing a book who's never been on the mission field. No, he's writing with calloused hands of ministry. There's something to be said when you read an account like this from somebody who's actually been out in the field. So understand as you read Luke, you're reading it from a man who's lived this. While he was not an eyewitness to what's recorded in the gospel, we read about him in Acts. This isn't just an account. It's personal. So verses one and two now say, in as much as many have, as many have undertaken to compile an account, Luke, before beginning his gospel account, and this is our, our second point, Luke's sources. Before he begins writing things out, he wants us to see that he isn't the first person to do this. Again, this is, should give us confidence. Oftentimes we think that the only people they were writing about the life of Christ are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were the only ones divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit to write scripture, but there were lots of reports and lots of accounts circulating about Jesus of Nazareth, the one who did healings, the one who died a substitutionary death, the one who rose from the dead. Many have undertaken, he says here, As stated earlier, Luke probably wrote this in 61 AD. How many accounts did he reference? We don't know. But this should give us confidence. The news, the message of Christ was all the buzz. Everybody was hearing about this. 
Matthew's gospel had already been circulating. Mark's gospel has already been circulating. The Bible isn't something that came around for around 300 AD during the reign of Constantine. No, early on, this was news and people were hearing it. Many have undertaken, he says, to compile an account. Then he says, of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That word fulfilled is extremely important. He's saying the things that have been completed, the things that have been accomplished. This may have double meaning here. It may refer to Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled by Christ. But it also refers to the plan of redemption accomplished by Christ. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus makes reference to this fulfillment. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45. Now he, talking of Christ, said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The entire Bible, your entire Old Testament has been pointing to Christ. And Christ fulfilled all that was prophesied of him. Then in Luke chapter 19, we see that, again, Christ came to fulfill the plan of redemption. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus says, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. So when Luke says here, have been fulfilled among us, he's saying everything that was prophesied, everything that was to come with the Messiah has been fulfilled in Christ. And he has come to fulfill his great mission, his plan of redemption, which is to seek and save the lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 could be the summary verse of the entire gospel account. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see that this truth of fulfillment reminds us that our God never slumbers. Our God is at work. Everything that was prophesied was fulfilled because our God has sovereignly been working all things to the glorious plan of redemption through Christ. All that he promised has come to pass. That means trust your Bibles. Trust the word of God. Every fulfillment of prophecy should further deepen your trust that the word of God is true. That also means we should be reading our Old Testament a lot more than we do because there's a whole lot there that would help us see, understand the Old Testament in a bigger, more explosive manner. I will tell you from experience, it's really amazing to read through Leviticus and you have that light bulb moment. You're like, that's talking about Jesus. I had no idea. Let's take up the full counsel of God and read to really understand what it is that has been fulfilled in him. Now, after fulfillment, he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. An eyewitness, somebody who was there 
Somebody who can tell you what happened. They saw it, they observed it, they reported it. They didn't hear it from somebody else and then tell people. They saw it with their own eyes. There are people who actually knew Jesus. Who would these witnesses be? Well, of course, you have the 12 disciples. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus. But in 1 John 1, 1, we also, we hear reference there of the 12. They say, we saw, we touched, we experienced. In Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, we talk, we hear about the 70 who were with Jesus. So they were eyewitnesses. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, we're told about the 120 who were sent out by Jesus. They're eyewitnesses. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, after his resurrection, we're told of the 500 who witnessed the risen Christ. That's a whole lot of witnesses. When Luke's writing this, sure, some of them have died, but there's a lot of witnesses still alive. If Luke was writing a fictitious account, there'd be a whole lot of people to say that's not how that went down. And these eyewitnesses, it says, were from the beginning. They didn't come into the picture late in the game. Near the end of Jesus' ministry. No, when Jesus' very ministry began, they were there. Luke's gospel begins with the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. These are people that are going way back to how it all began. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and was among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. It is clear these eyewitnesses saw it all. They're to be trusted. The word of God is not a work of fiction. It's a historical book. It happened in time and in space here on earth. We have witnesses confirming what Luke's writing, not refuting what Luke's writing. I remember when I was an unbeliever, and somebody, if I heard that, I'd be like, well, you can't really trust them. But you trust what you see on Twitter? If we have a car accident, we trust witnesses to give reports, and that's good enough for a court of law. We trust hearsay all the time. But when it comes to Christ, the issue isn't that the witnesses are incredible. It's that people's hearts are hard. It goes on to say that these eyewitnesses were servants of the word also. These aren't two classes of people. Those who saw then served the message and the mission of Christ. They went out into the streets and they started telling everybody. You know what's amazing? Is that Luke could have written names. He could have said Peter, James, Mary. He could have said all this. What does he say? He says servants. 
It doesn't matter who they are. It matters how they saw themselves. They were servants of the word of God. It is a term of humility. No names are given because it's not the names that matter. It's the message and the mission of Christ that matters. They are servants of the word. It's also a bit of a play on words because in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. So the servants of the word, Christ, were also servants of the word, the inspired written word. And so these eyewitnesses, these servants, he says they handed them down to us. They handed down the teachings. They handed down the traditions. They gave us that authoritative body of truth because that's what followers of Jesus do. They keep handing the message and the mission down to the next person and the next person and the next person. Now, I want to take a moment here because, brothers and sisters, I want you to see that what one of the things that makes our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so unique is these eyewitnesses. Every other major religion, with the exception of Judaism, because that is, in some ways you can say Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Every other major religion usually starts with somebody having a private dream about God, some private idea about God, some angelic encounter about God. They're all alone. And then they go tell everybody, guess what happened? Guess what I saw? Guess what I dreamed? There's no eyewitnesses. It's not grounded in any historical moment, whether it could be verified to be true or not. No, it's a guy in a cave, a guy in a basement. But Christianity is not that way at all. Jesus has a three-year public ministry in front of everybody. Political figures are named throughout that can be historically verified. Jesus is crucified publicly in front of all. He's buried in a public tomb. That public tomb is guarded by Roman soldiers. He rises from the dead publicly and shows himself to everyone publicly. And then everybody goes and tells them, tells the world what happened. We're going to see more evidence of this in Luke's gospel in the coming weeks. But it's very simple. If this didn't happen, history would say it didn't happen. But you know what's funny? History doesn't say it didn't happen. They try to find excuses. Well, maybe it's not being understood properly. It's being misunderstood. Plain and simple, they could have just said, show me the body. And I, the eyewitnesses show us that our faith is supernatural, but it's historical. It's not the, the musings of a man in a cave who had some kind of vision. The entire Bible bears witness to this. 66 books spanning roughly 1,600 years, 40 different authors, different educational backgrounds, different vocations, three different continents, one central theme, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hundreds, if not thousands of prophecies fulfilled. Christianity almost says, I dare you to show me it's not true. Show me where the Bible isn't true. Many have tried, all have failed. There is no other religion that can say this because all other religions are false religions. Christianity alone is true. So the church must respond to the word of God 
by recognizing, affirming its truth, trusting it, and submitting to it. I want to challenge us for a moment here. As Luke is just beginning, he talks about how it was handed down to them. How the, those eyewitnesses and servants of the word shared the message and mission of Christ. Do you, do I share that message and mission of Christ? Or do we simply like to hang out in our holy huddles and debate it back and forth? I enjoy a good theological debate and discussion just as much as the next person. I probably enjoy it too much. But at the end of the day, we need to be going out there and letting people know this is who Christ is. This is what Christ has done. Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you too shall be saved. Somebody shared it with Luke, and now Luke is sharing it with others. And we have the responsibility to do the same. We need to be handing down the faith. So we've seen who Luke is. We've seen Luke's sources and how it came together. And now we see Luke's process for putting this gospel together. Look at verse three with me. It seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in an orderly sequence. When Luke says it was fitting for me as well, he's recognizing these other works out there. And I want us to make sure he's not saying that they're bad. And so I'm writing this as a form of correction. I'm writing this because they're incomplete. That's not the case at all. After all, it was handed down to him. Luke is wanting to complement what's already out there. Luke, we know, had interactions with Matthew and Mark. Maybe he had uh, read their gospel accounts. We don't know. But Luke is saying, I'm writing this to complement what's been written. We see that Luke's account is very much in agreement with the other two synoptic gospels. And it's in agreement with a lot of the early writings of the church. Now, some say... But if he's just writing what others have written, how does that, how is that divinely inspired? Because God, by the Holy Spirit, has called Luke to write this account, and he's preserved Luke's account for us. And Luke did the work. Look what it says here. It says, having investigated everything carefully. That word investigate is interesting. If you were to find the literal definition of that word, it'd be, I traced it out carefully. The idea of there's a letter and you're tracing a letter. He's so closely connected to it. To the most minute detail, he's checking it all out. I believe his name was Sir William Ramsey. He was a skeptic. And so he approached Luke's writings to test it all out, whether it was true or not. At the end, he, he affirmed, Luke is probably one of the greatest historians of his time. Luke was painstakingly thorough in his investigation. He was diligent to check it all out. Luke was a man driven to find the truth and record the truth. 
he adds carefully in there to make sure that everybody knows this is accurate. I've accurately investigated things. I've taken a very strict and deliberate approach in compiling this gospel account. Luke wanted to make sure that when it was all said and done, people would look back on what he recorded and they know that it was honest, accurate, and free from error. Because Luke knew he wasn't just investigating another news story. He was investigating and recording the most important message that the world has ever heard and will ever hear. He was recording the message and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did his homework and he did it right. So another challenge for us, another challenging question. We're not writing scripture, but do we give ourselves to the careful investigation and study of the word of God before we go and we tell others about God? How carefully do you prepare before you proclaim? How carefully do you know the word of God so that you're not just ripping verses out of context and giving people false hope, false truths? You and I have no reason to not give ourselves to the careful investigation and careful study of the word of God to be used by God. We have more resources and things available to us. We don't have to chase down eyewitnesses. We just have to prayerfully open this book, read, compare scripture with scripture. God has given the church over the years wonderful teachers to guide. But we should take the same diligent, careful, investigative study to be used to share the word of God that Luke used to write the word of God. Luke says, from the, investigating everything carefully from the beginning. Luke wanted to go all the way back. He was acquainted with scriptures. He consolidated them all by the power of the Holy Spirit leading him. And he did it in an orderly sequence. When you look at how the gospel of Luke is structured, you can say it's semi-chronological. So let me un unpack what orderly sequence means. It doesn't mean that it's rigidly chronological, but it's semi-chronological. Chapters one and two of Luke's gospel record the, the foretelling and the birth of Christ. Chapters three through nine, we start seeing the public ministry of Christ. Chapters 10 through 19, we see the instruction given to the disciples. And chapters 20 through 24 is the betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. So it's a, it's a loosely kind of semi-chronological. But this orderly sequence also means that Luke's gospel is theologically structured. In chapters 1 through 6, in chapters 10 through 18, Jesus is presented as a prophet. In chapters 7 through 9, Jesus is presented as a priest. And in chapters 19 through 24, Jesus is presented as a king. And the entire book is an orderly sequence of conflict moving from Galilee toward Jerusalem. Luke's a historian, but he also knows that he's writing to make a point. 
And so he structures his book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to make that clear. If you didn't get all of that, that's okay. Or that's what we're going to be in Luke for. We're going to break those divisions down and we'll get them. But I want us to understand that this is a, Luke was an educated man. He was a thoughtful man. He worked hard. But that's not what makes Luke's gospel even trustworthy. That helps. What makes it trustworthy is that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God preserved this work. Now, who did he write for? Why did he write this, this gospel account? The end of verse three, he says, most excellent Theophilus. The name Theophilus means lover of God. Some have said that maybe Theophilus is a code name for a church during that time, but it wasn't under persecution. There's no reason to really think that, especially by writing most excellent there at the beginning. It seems, it seems that Theophilus was an actual person. Most excellent is those two words are used in Acts 24. <laughs> verse 3, when it reads, We welcome this in every way and everywhere. Most excellent Felix. With all thankfulness. And we see that again in Acts chapter 26, verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. So in Luke's writing, he uses that to refer to actual people in the book of Acts. And so we stands to reason that Theophilus is also an actual person. Theophilus is probably a person of prominence in the culture and society. He probably has some rank. He's Greek. We see him referenced in Acts 1.1. Maybe Theophilus is a believer. We'll look at that in a moment. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's a God-fear. Whatever, whoever he was, Luke has a very intentional purpose to write to them. Which brings us to our verse 4, our final point, Luke's purpose. Verse 4 reads, read then to verse 3, Most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty about the things you've been taught. Certainty. Theophilus was acquainted with the claims and truths of the Christian faith. But there seems to be some kind of implication here. Something's going on that looks like I need to make sure you really are grounded, that you really know that what you have been taught is true. Maybe if he's holding that position, doubts are flying in because to align yourself with this movement is going to cause problems. Maybe at that time there was still some discrepancies, perhaps with Jew and Gentile disagreements. And so as a Greek, am I really supposed to follow this Jewish savior? Maybe he was just a young believer and needed to be grounded. Maybe he's a searching unbeliever. We don't know. But Luke, in verse 4, shows a pastor's heart. He shows a pastoral heart here. Theophilus, I want to make sure that you know what you've been taught. That's a word for us. We're really good at just having like these data dumps on people. 
but we need to take time with people so that they may know the certainty about the things that they have been taught. I want to encourage you. I'm all about evangelism. That's great. I have good friends that do street preaching. Wonderful. But sometimes we get so fixated on wanting to evangelize that we don't actually take time with people to disciple them. It'd be far more fruitful than just passing out tracts to invite somebody into your home to go grab a cup of coffee and say, hey, I'm willing to make time. I'm willing to cut time out of my life to sit with you so that you may know the certainty about the things that you've been taught. When was the last time you sat with somebody, maybe a young believer, maybe a struggling believer, maybe an unbeliever and said, hey, I want to sit with you so that you can be grounded with certainty in the things that you've been taught. You have people in your life that need that. Maybe you need that. Ask somebody here. Luke shows a pastoral heart. He shows a desire to see Theophilus grounded in the faith. He's not bringing a new teaching, the things you've been taught. It's an old path. The message never changes. We live in a society right now that says you can know nothing for certain. Except that you can know nothing for certain, right? Because that's a certain, that's an asserted, asserted claim. So I want to have just two points of application on this here. Faith in the word of God is not a leap into the dark. You don't have to check your brain at the door. As we've been seeing this, this account, the, the word of God, the scriptures are historically grounded. Faith in God's word has a foundation that you can stand on, that you can build on. There's verifiable content to be believed. God has amazingly preserved his recorded word for us. So do you know the content of the faith? Do you have conviction that it's true? And then are you confidently submitting your life to it? You need all three. You have to have the content, but having the content without conviction means nothing. You have to have conviction it's true, but simply knowing the faith, believing it's true, profits nothing if you don't submit your life to it. When Luke says, so that you may know the certainty, he's not talking simply head knowledge. He's talking know in the intimate sense, know in the sense that your life can be, Theophilus, you can, you can build your life on this. Which of those three areas are you struggling with? Is it content? Do you not know really what you believe? Talk to Carol. Talk to Val. Talk to Phil. Talk to myself. Talk to Tony. Let us help you understand the content of your faith. Is it conviction? I just don't know if I really believe it. Let's sit down and work through that. Is it submission? I don't know that I could confidently bring my life in alignment with it. 
then you need discipleship. Saturday mornings is a great place to start with that. That's what it means to know with certainty. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Simply a belief that lives in your head will profit you nothing. What you need a belief is that shows itself in a life given over to obedience. That is what Luke is driving at with Theophilus. Know it in that way. Second application point there. Do you actually care enough about the souls of men and women that you're willing to do for them what Luke did for Theophilus? Luke investigated, carefully recorded. He sends it to Theophilus. He does the same thing with the book of Acts. Are you truly willing to carefully investigate, understand your faith, and then take the time to present it to another human being? Your faith is not simply for you. If you think the faith is simply for you, you're selfish and you need to repent of it. God has called you to himself so that you can be used by God to call others to himself. That takes time. That takes effort. That takes sacrifice. Luke did those things in recording this account and setting it to Theophilus. We need to do likewise. We also see in these four verses that it, we are to trust and obey the word of God. It's like that also, it was trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus. You must trust and obey. You can trust the word of God. In these four verses, we see a foundation being laid for all that will follow. Luke wants to make sure out of the gates, Theophilus, I'm writing this so you can know with certainty, so that you can trust these words. These aren't my opinions. These aren't my ideas. These are my reflections and musings. These are the facts. I've searched them out. I challenge you to do likewise, Theophilus. You know, there's so many things in this world that you and I believe with far less evidence. It's kind of funny and comical, I know, but think about this. You believe that you were born on the day that it says in your birth certificate. But how do you really know you were born that day? Were you, do you remember it? You, realize you don't have any recollection of the day you were born. There's a piece of paper, mom and dad, maybe a doctor, but that doctor might be dead by now. Like, how do you know you were, how do I know I was born May 14th of 1984? I simply believe based on the limited evidence that there is. And two eyewitnesses called mom and dad. I actually have more evidence for the truth of scripture than the day I was born. Most of us have never seen the evidence or at least understood the numbers and the math and all that to show how the earth revolves around the sun. I just believe that's what happens. 
Somebody asked me to explain it. I'm like, I don't know how that works, but it's true. How do I know that's true? Well, teachers told me, professionals say it. NASA wouldn't lie, right? Trust the government. If you're going to work and you see a board outside that says road closed, take detour. Do you really know that that world's closed and there's a detour? Or are you just trusting what that sign says? You didn't go check it out. You simply drive around and you believe it to be true. So there's lots of things we believe with far less evidence than God gives us in his word. I'm not even saying outside evidence verifying the word of God. I'm saying the internal evidence, the self-authenticating evidence of the word of God. Simply comparing scripture with scripture and seeing that it is historically true. We have far more evidence for that than for most things we believe. I believe my wife loves me, but I don't know that for sure, right? Like, like she believes I love her. Based on what? What I'm saying, how I live. We, we all believe things with far less evidence. Let us believe the word of God with even greater certainty than those things. Only the truth is worth believing. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The gospel according to Luke is as true as fire is hot. Jesus is who he says he is. He came and did what he said he would do. And you can have certainty about that. And we're going to see that over the next years that we work through this book. So if you're here this morning and you're doubting if it's all true, like I said at the beginning, Come back next week and the week after, and let's see that together. If you need certainty in your life because the foundations feel a little shaky, go home, start reading Luke, come back next week, and we'll see it. If you believe it's true and you have certainty, pick it up, read, come back next week, and allow your certainty to go deeper and deeper and deeper and for your heart to get bigger and bigger and bigger with worship. The gospel according to Luke is for all. And I invite you all, as we walk through this glorious gospel account, to pray for God to use you, to share it, to open the eyes of all those in the world who are believing a lie and do not have the truth. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in the glorious, matchless name of Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in your special revelation, which is the word of God, that you moved men like Luke to record it, and that you, Holy Spirit, guided Luke to record it in an infallible, inerrant manner. With clarity and authority that comes only from you. Help us see that we can know with certainty that you are the God of truth, that Christ, you really came, lived perfectly, died a substitutionary death, buried and rose, defeating sin and death, making forgiveness available to all, and by faith, giving us your righteousness.
I pray for any Theophilus out there who needs that certainty. Lord, I pray for my own heart for that certainty. All of us will have moments where doubt wants to sneak in the door or our confidence becomes shaky. Let us always remember that we can have certainty in your word because you are the God who does not lie, does not change. You are the God of truth. And let us see here that Luke's argument under the perspiration of the Holy Spirit is not saying, let me prove it's true by using anything other than scripture. No, your word is sufficient to save. Your word is sufficient to give certainty and hope. Your word is sufficient for all. We long to, 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 to go further into this book, God, and to see your glory, your beauty, your excellency, Lord Jesus. Give us eyes to see this as we go. Give us hearts that yearn for it and animate our lives that we would go and do what those eyewitnesses did for Luke, and that's hang da- hand down this truth. And then do, for Luke, do as Luke did for Theophilus, and that is carefully investigate and share with others. We pray all of this in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.